Good morning. Uh, today's reading comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 35. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, of, of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and taught you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the, in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So over the years, I've come to enjoy playing team sports like ice hockey, soccer, or ultimate frisbee. And I know I often get confused with this guy like on the screen, but that's not me. Is it up there? I don't know. Okay. But uh, when playing, I found myself drawn to defensive roles in these team games. I love to see opposing teams' offense as they develop on the rink or on the field in front of me. I like to find ways to help my team shut them down. What I lack in goal-scoring abilities, I find my foot speed is helpful in covering, uh, you know, covering the field fast enough to cut off angles of attack, shut down passing lanes, and uh, slowing down offensive players from getting into positions that threaten my team. In some ways, you could say I am a contrarian in sports. I want to slow down the opposing team's flow. I want to frustrate their players, uh, tire them out, and limit points scored against my team. Being a contrarian against an opposing team is helpful. 
being a contrarian against your own team is not? Or is it? See, as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 13 today, we're about the halfway mark through Luke's gospel. And we see an inflection in Jesus' ministry. It's an inflection point. His interaction with the people of Israel has been building. Popularity is rising, but so has the tension between him and the religious leaders. His actions reveal what we might call Jesus' contrarian nature. Jesus seems to shut down people who are not living in line with this kingdom that he came to introduce. And he's frustrating some of them. The religious leaders are wondering if Jesus is really on their team. People are cheering him on, go rabbi, but he seems to be doing things that are going against their grain, against their expectations. He's rocking the boat. And for some of us, we actually like this kind of Jesus. We like anti-establishment, stick it to the man, Jesus. The character aligns well with perhaps some of our contrarian natures ourselves. Some of us, in fact, are, uh, like to be contrarian for contrarian's sake. We want to be anti-establishment or not mainstream in our fashion choices, in our opinions, or in our theological uh, expressions. Often this comes as a, our contrarian nature is because we want to self-express and individuate. In fact, some of us are actually paid for our contrarian instincts. We get paid to look for weaknesses, to challenge opponents, and to defend our team. It's called being a lawyer. <laughs> Jesus' contrarian acts are not meant, though, for ego or for competitive nature. His contrarian acts are, and challenges are purposeful. They're intended to guide people into the flourishing life that God intends for us as humans, but for all of creation. So today, we're going to look at Jesus, the purposeful or quintessential contrarian who comes to bring a contrary kingdom, a contrary belonging, and a revolutionary love. A contrary kingdom, a contrary belonging, and a revolutionary love. So one theme that we notice in this chapter in Jesus' reference to his journey is his journey towards Jerusalem. He talks about the first and second and third day. He must go to Jerusalem. And this movement of Jesus culminates on Palm Sunday that we remembered and celebrated so well today with the children leading us. It's this day that Jesus is welcomed into the city as the king of the Jews. But here, too, we find that Jesus is a contrarian kind of king. There's no accompanying garrison of soldiers, just a ragtag bunch of misfits. There's no armor and crown in a chariot pulled by a team of horses, just Jesus sitting on a donkey, hardly fitting for a king, at least in our minds. In Luke 13, the tension of Jewish expectations of a Messiah and what Jesus actually comes to do as a Messiah come to a head. Jesus challenges their understanding of the kingdom of God. So he asks, he knows the question is in their minds, and so he says to them, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? How would you answer that if someone were to ask you that today? What would life look like if God's love reigned in our world? Maybe our contemporary values might frame something like God's kingdom looking like one of equality and tolerance, or perhaps 
where God's presence is felt by all, or a world where God's love and joy are known and enjoyed by all, a world without oppression and sin and sadness. That might be where, what we might picture. These are all great qualities and, and characteristic of God's kingdom. But how does Jesus answer this question that he asks about what God's kingdom looks like? For the Jewish people of his time, they expected this greatness of God's kingdom to go boom when Jesus arrived. But Jesus describes a different nature to God's kingdom. He says he uses two images to describe the kingdom of God in verses 19 to 21. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and leaven or yeast in bread. Mustard seed is very, a mustard seed is very tiny, hardly distinguishable to the human eye, but it grows into the size of a tree, 8 feet, 10 feet tall. And the second image he gives is that of yeast mixed with dough that was 60 pounds of dough. That's a lot of bread. In fact, it's about bread to feed 100 people. Jesus' point in these images is that God's kingdom has arrived in a way that seems to be invisible. It seems to be unnoticeable now. But it's going to bear fruit over time, and it's going to change the surroundings of where the kingdom of God is in ways that are significant, though it is not immediately recognizable. Particularly in the West, where the Christian church has held kind of historical power or influence, Jesus' followers may be tempted to believe that God's kingdom only comes through the flourishing of the church. But Jesus' words here remind us that the final arrival of God's kingdom depends not on the church's flourishing, but on Jesus' returning. But since the days of Constantine in the 4th century, the church has struggled with this tension of thinking this text is a call to exercise power in culture and society. We discover, however, that the way of Jesus is not the way of wielding power, but the way of sacrifice and of service. The church is not called to the sword or guns in America, nor to power, but to service. And whenever professing Jesus' followers have confused these two things. It has led to disastrous results. We see the results of that even in our country today. God will bring ultimate transformation to our world, to our nation, when Jesus returns. But until that day, we are called to serve and to sacrifice the community of faith and the wider community in the loving and caring nature of God. See, when we misapply this text, we misplace our hopes in political and cultural influence to bring God's kingdom. We expect that that must happen. It's not saying that we cannot be, in, that Jesus' followers cannot be influential or be in positions of power, but we do not depend on those for God's kingdom and for our sense of joy and hope. Whatever if you hold views that are maybe more traditional and historically centered or maybe progressive and historically marginalized, the hope of God's kingdom isn't that your position wins in society and holds more cultural power. But it's that we all, as Jesus' followers, live faithfully in God's kingdom in ways that reflect the love, the humility, the grace, and the sacrifice 
of Jesus that seeks to serve those who are most affected by the pride and evil that are inevitable in the world that we live in. In other words, this contrarian kingdom of God does not require God's people to take or retake positions of power and influence to usher in God's kingdom. It only requires that we follow Jesus in the service of others, obediently following the voice of the living God. And like a mustard seed, and like yeast in the dough, we can't make that change happen. We don't make the results happen. We are only agents of the living God who make things happen in God's kingdom. This truth about God's kingdom, though, gives us hope and freedom. It frees us from depending on the results to, for us to feel good about ourselves. But it also encourages us to work hard and to pray hard. See, working in God's kingdom challenges our instincts to throw up our hands in despair, saying, well, what's the point of trying? The world is going to, uh, into a hellhole faster than I can even make a difference. Let's just wait for Jesus to return. Having this view of God's kingdom also prevents us from shaking our fists in anger and saying, if things don't go the way I expect, at the timing I expect, then life is over. What's the point? Understanding the nature of God's kingdom as this mustard-like, yeast-like kingdom frees us and gives us the hope to do all that we can. So we work and we pray and we lobby and we advocate and we serve like it all depends on us. But we don't work and pray and advocate and lobby and serve responding to, uh, responding to the results like it depends on us. And this leads us to this contrary belonging that Jesus speaks of in his kingdom. Jesus' teaching here on the nature of God's kingdom is an invitation to the people of Israel to trust in him. But it's also, and it's an invitation for us, but it's also a challenge to God's people. Nothing will stop God's kingdom from coming. But it's also a warning for us about what we place our hope in. Chapter 13 is one of the Jesus' clearest challenges to the people of Israel. The descendants of Abraham, whom God had promised to be a blessing to the world. And this next section in verses 22 to 30 is often marked in our English Bibles as the narrow door. And this describes how their rejection of Jesus is sealing their fate. Since God's kingdom is coming, people must respond to him now. That's what's happening in Jesus' time. You may have heard this saying before, the opportunity of a lifetime must be received in the lifetime of the opportunity. Sense? The opportunity of a lifetime must be taken in the lifetime of the opportunity. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. The original invitees to this belonging in God's kingdom, which are the descendants of Abraham, will miss this blessing if they do not respond to this lifetime of the opportunity with Jesus the Messiah standing before them. And the man who questions Jesus senses that Jesus is rebuking his people. So he says, well, is there, there are only going to be a few saved? Who is actually going to belong in God's kingdom? Will everyone, I think, be there? 
In fact, will I be there? See, for most Jewish people, belonging to God's new kingdom was grounded in their identity as descendants of Abraham. Their belonging was based on their ethnicity or their religious faithfulness to the law of Moses and perhaps even to this narrative of being an oppressed and marginalized people group. But were any of those grounds for their inclusion and belonging in God's family and God's blessing? What does Jesus say? Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. In verse 29, Jesus' answer is pretty clear to his hearers. Belonging in God's kingdom is not based on group identification. It's not based on ethnicity or religious faithfulness or identifying with an oppressed or marginalized people group. None of these guarantees automatic inclusion in God's kingdom. Belonging in God's kingdom is simply based on two things here that Jesus says. One, those who make every effort to enter in through the narrow door. And secondly, those whom the owner of the house recognizes. Jesus presents two analogies for himself in these two images of belonging. Jesus is the narrow door itself through which everyone must pass in order to belong. Secondly, Jesus is the owner of the house who's standing at the door, letting in those who belong and keeping those who do not belong out. How does this challenge our ideas of a God? The basis of inclusion of God's kingdom in God's kingdom is contrary to all the expectations of the Jewish people of Jesus' time. Be it belonging wasn't going to be based on group identification or on bloodlines, but simply on one's response to Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as Deliverer, as King, as Lord, as God, in our biblical spiritual terms. Or maybe in contemporary terms, belonging in God's kingdom and family depends on our response to let Jesus heal us, to let Jesus form us, to let Jesus lead us into flourishing in every part of our lives and in our world. That's the change and the transformation as we've been learning in the first section. That's God's doing. Our part is humble repentance and trust in Jesus to let him do it. That's what it means to make every effort to enter through the narrow door that Jesus demands. Repentance, which is to turn from, trust is to turn to, and obedience is to continue following in. Repentance, trust, and obedience to Jesus is the responsibility of all those who will enter and find belonging with God. Who gets to enjoy this belonging? Jesus' answer is actually contrarian too. On one hand, his answer seems to restrict some of the descendants of Abraham from belonging in God's kingdom. And on the other hand, Jesus extends belonging much wider than anyone had ever imagined. They said in verse 26, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets, but he will reply, I don't know you 
or where you come from, away from me, you evil doers. What is Jesus saying here? To his Jewish contemporaries, their place in God's kingdom wasn't guaranteed just because they had been around Jesus or because they had seen him do miracles and they were cheering him on. Their inclusion would be based on their response to Jesus as the Messiah, as the one sent by God. Jesus repeats that phrase again, I don't know you or where you come from. In verse 29, Though Jesus opens wide this inclusion in God's kingdom to every people group beyond the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why most of us here, who I presume are not Jews by ethnicity, that's why we even have hope of even belonging in God's kingdom because Jesus has opened wide this door. Jesus' answer to the man's question shifts the original question from, will just a few be saved? To, Will you be saved? Are you going to respond to Jesus in this way? And though we may not be Jewish by uh, birth, Jesus' contrarian view of inclusion may push up against our view of who belongs in God's family. We don't belong simply because we have identified as Christian or Mennonite. We don't belong simply because we believe in God or because we go to church. We don't belong in God's kingdom because we identify with a historically oppressed or marginalized people group. And we don't belong because we hold a specific theological tradition. We are included and we find belonging simply by trusting in Jesus. We belong by regularly confessing how we are prone to choosing our own ways by confessing how we believe the lies we tell ourselves or how the lies that we're told by others. We, believe, we, we belong by confessing that we don't really trust God with our lives fully. We belong when we daily interact with Jesus. Hence our emphasis here at WCF on spiritual practices as a community that nurture this kind of life with Jesus. And that's how Jesus comes to us and stands at the, as the owner of the house and says to each one who chooses to live in this way, saying, hey, I know you. I recognize you. You're starting to look a little more like me. Welcome in. You belong. And this brings us to this, the final verses of this text where Jesus laments Jerusalem's fate because of their rejection of Jesus as the promised one of God. Some Pharisees come to Jesus and they tell him, move along, move along from our towns. And they couch this warning as a concern for his safety, but likely it's because Jesus is challenging, his challenging words are revealing their own hypocrisy and their rejection of him as the Messiah. So how does he respond? In verse 34, he laments Jerusalem. And he uses Jerusalem as a metaphor, but also as this tangible reality of what's going to happen to it because they've rejected Jesus. Jerusalem is a metaphor representing God's people, the descendants of Abraham. And they cannot assume to belong in God's kingdom simply because they continue to reject, well, those who do reject Jesus. And secondly, it's 
describing Jerusalem as a tangible reality because 30, 40 years later from Jesus' death, Jerusalem was, will fall out of, will fall. Jesus knows that the physical city will be lost to the Jewish people and Jerusalem still to this day, 2,000 years later, continues to be a place of dispute. Yet what sounds like tough words here and judgment are in fact words of revolutionary love. Here we see that the love of God poured out towards the people of Israel. For generations and generations, God has given the law of Moses to this people group. For generations, God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet, wooing Israel back to God, saying, come, will you return to me? But over and over again, they refused to listen. And now that the Messiah, the one sent by God, the one promised, has arrived in their midst, they still do not recognize Jesus as the one sent by God for them and for the world. They continue to remain stubborn in their ways, fixed in their mindsets, and they will soon find themselves outside the realm of belonging with God if they continue to reject Jesus as God. These sound tough, but they are words of immense love. They're reflected in Jesus' longing to gather the children of Israel together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. This image is reminiscent of God's loving care conveyed throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 11, the, the Jews who were listening to Jesus teach at this time would know that he is alluding to these texts in Deuteronomy 32, where God is described like an eagle stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, describing the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The Lord God is strong and mighty, but the Lord God is also tender and nurturing longing to gather God's children as a mother hen gathers her chicks. And Jesus uses this image to convey his own loving and sacrificial care for God's children. This imagery is not so much a statement on God's gender as much as it is a declaration of God's character that embodies the fullest traits of human genders. The living God is far more masculine and far more feminine than, and perfectly in those traits, than any human reflection of God's image. God's love revealed in Jesus is far more inclusive than being limited to the descendants of Abraham. And that's why we, most of us who are Gentiles, even have a hope of finding belonging in God's kingdom. And God's love is far more patient, far more long-suffering than any human love. God is constantly reaching out, longing for his children to return to him. And even when they constantly step out of the nest, God's love is tenderly nudging and inviting all of us to return. God's love is extended to all. No one is outside God's love. Even those who are not Jews. Praise God. Even those who continue to walk away, even those who step out and fall, God loves all. That's the objective reality conveyed in this image of this mother hen. 
But those who benefit from God's love, those who enjoy the fullness of God's love, in other words, those that find belonging with God, only do so when they respond to Jesus as the narrow door, as the owner of the house that recognizes his children. Those who belong with God must welcome Jesus into their lives. God's love is for you today. How will you respond? In what ways have you been stepping out of the nest of God's presence? And how might God be inviting you back, lifting you up, covering you? Return under God's loving care. Confess your independence. And allow Jesus to lead you in every part of your life. As you do so, may you find new blessing, new hope, and a renewed sense of belonging because God will say, I know you, I recognize you, and that's a good thing. Amen.